Good evening. My name is Bryce Stevenson, and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues. On behalf of the Clark Forum and the Department of Economics, I would like to welcome you to this evening's program, a Minskian explanation of the economic crisis. The current economic and financial crisis has had a large impact on the United States and the world. Recession was officially declared in the U.S. in late December of 2007 and didn't come to an end until June 2009. As a result of the economic and financial crisis, unemployment rates have risen, gross domestic product has declined, and other adverse socioeconomic repercussions have been felt during what has been the longest and worst recession since the Great Depression. Many factors can contributed to this crisis, including the following. The subprime mortgage crisis and foreclosure epidemic of late 2006, the automobile industry crisis of 2008, and the fall of major U.S. financial institutions in 2008 and their accompanying $700 billion bailout. Tonight, we are fortunate to have with us an expert who has closely studied the ongoing crisis. L. Randall Ray is a professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He currently serves as the research director at the Center for Full Employment and Price Stability and is a senior scholar at the Levy Economics Institute of Bard College. He has served as a visiting professor at the University of Rome, the University of Paris, and the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Ray is the author of Understanding Modern Money, The Key to Full Employment and Price Stability, and Money and Credit in Capitalist Economies, and is the editor of several economic texts. Ray is also the author of numerous scholarly articles and edited books and academic journals, including the Journal of Economic Issues, Cambridge Journal of Economics, Review of Political Economy, Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics, and Economic and Labor Relations Review. At this time, I would like to remind you to please turn off all cell phones and other electronic devices. Also, there will be a question and answer session at the end of the program. Thank you, and now please join me in welcoming L. Randall Ray. Thank you. Well, thanks to all of you for showing up and for the um, center here for inviting me um, to talk on this subject. Uh, you will see that the explanation is um, fairly complex. There wasn't one single cause of the um, crisis, so I'll spend most of the time going through the multiple causes of the um, crisis, and we'll give a Minskyan spin on this. Uh, Minsky was my dissertation advisor. Unfortunately, he died in 1996. So um, I, I think that he uh, had been projecting this sort of a crisis. One of his famous uh, books was titled, Can It Happen Again? And his answer was a qualified yes. And it looks like it may have happened again. Um, only time will tell. Uh, I do not believe that the crisis is by any means over, as will become apparent as we go along. Um, I think that we are in only a temporary uh, respite from crisis and from recession. So it may turn out to have been the case that it did happen again. And of course, what he meant by that was a 1930s um, style depression and debt deflation process. Okay, first, uh, probably most of you have heard that the Queen of England asked her economists, how come none of you saw this coming? Okay, why did economists fail to see this? 
Well, I, I think that there are two um, falsehoods that have been propagated by some, um, and that is that first the crisis was unforeseeable. No one saw it coming. No one could have seen it coming. And the second was that it was unpreventable, okay? That it was caused by black swans with fat tails. And maybe some of you know what I'm referring to. In other words, it was a, a one in a million chance, and we just had a lot of bad luck, okay? Now, I think that um, both of these uh, statements are untrue. The um, financial crisis inquiry report issued by the government it's fascinating reading. I recommend all of you um, at least uh, take a look at this. You can download it from the um, government website, or you can pay about 15 bucks and get a 500-page book. Uh, anyway, they argue that this was a man-made crisis. I have man, man in quotes because it turns out they really were all men. Um, <laughs> And that uh, the captains of finance, that is Wall Street, and the public stewards, that is our supposed regulators, um, caused it and ignored all the warnings um, that were amply uh, in view. The second reality is that many economists did see it coming. Okay, and I have my own name up there. Uh, when Godley and I wrote about the coming crisis in 1998. Now, on the one hand, you say, well, that, that's at least 10 years too uh, early. And if you're always predicting crisis, maybe eventually it's going to happen. And of course, there is that danger when you do that. But I think that the crisis did unfold in ways that we were talking about back in 1998. And I'll mention that. Probably many of you have heard Dean Baker. He's often on uh, public radio. He was talking about the, re the speculative real estate boom from about 2000. And he had plenty of evidence to demonstrate that housing prices were involved in a speculative um, bubble and that that would crash. And finally, I would say Minsky saw this coming around 1957. And that really is a very long-term um, projection. And it's not because he was uh, Nostradamus. It's because he understood the transformation that the capitalist economy was, un, um, uh, that was underway. And that, um, again, the crisis unfolded in ways that um, I think he foresaw. And finally, the reality is everyone saw it coming. Everyone on Wall Street saw it coming. We know that. We've read their internal emails. Okay? Uh, they use this uh, uh, abbreviation, YBG, IBG. Uh, you'll be gone, I'll be gone. We're going to make a lot of money in the next two years. Of course the whole thing's going to blow up. We know that. Okay? But we're going to get rich meantime. And so I think they all saw it coming. They not only saw it coming, they bet on it coming. I'm sure most of you have heard the story of uh, what Goldman Sachs did with hedge fund manager Paulson. Let Paulson purposely pick mortgages that were absolutely certain to default. Certain to default. And use those to put together CDOs that Goldman Sachs then sold to its own customers and let Paulson bet that they would go bad. And they were sure to go bad. They were betting on failure. Wall Street was going to win if the whole thing failed. If a crisis occurred, Wall Street won. 
They were betting on the crisis. In other words, this crisis was the desired outcome. It was planned for. It was worked toward. This is what they wanted. Now, I'll um, start talking about the um, crisis. But, you know, there was this view that the fundamentals of the economy were strong. Of course, this is John McCain. What was it built on? It was built on credit or the other side of the coin is debt. It was built on debt. And it was um, obvious that the whole thing was going to crash. When the crisis started in 2007, Minsky was rediscovered. It's not the first time Minsky was rediscovered. He was rediscovered uh, in, during the saving and loan crisis, for example. Okay? And he was, his ideas were very popular for a period. And then when, when we apparently recovered, he was forgotten again. So people like um, Macaulay wrote a, a famous piece on the, the Minsky moment. Many people call it the Minsky moment or the Minsky crisis. Um, I think that that's not a correct interpretation. It's a Minsky half century. Okay, Minsky was not talking about uh, the, only the final stage, say from 2000 to 2007, when we had the huge run-up in uh, real estate prices that then collapsed. Minsky was taking a stages approach, a stages approach to capitalism. Um, his argument was, and I'm going to be very brief on this, uh, you can read uh, papers that he wrote or that I wrote um, that goes through this in detail, but he argued in the 19th century we had commercial capitalism. That was a stage of capitalism in which um, firms used commercial banks to finance um, the production process. But Firms were able to finance their purchases of plant and equipment out of retained earnings or out of the savings of the owners of the firm. They didn't really, really need to go outside to borrow to finance investment. Finance capitalism came in towards the end of the 19th century, and this is the, the rise of investment banks. When we move from a commercial banking to investment banking, where the investment banks actually are financing the positions that are taken in long-lived and very expensive capital equipment. And so this is when Wall Street becomes much more important. Uh, for uh, the economists here, Hilferding is the one who came up with the, this um, uh, term, finance capitalism. It was the era of finance capitalism. And uh, that continued until 1929. 1929 is when finance capitalism collapsed. And the collapse in 1929 is very, very similar to the collapse in 2007. It has very similar causes. Uh, another reading I would highly recommend is John Kenneth Galbraith's short book on the financial collapse of 1929. He has a whole chapter on Goldman Sachs, and it turns out it's exactly the same in 2007. The same things they did in 1929, they did in 2007, with exactly the same results, okay? Um, so anyway, finance capitalism disappeared in 1929. We then got the New Deal. We reformed the financial system, and we had a lot of other um, aspects uh, to the New Deal. So we emerged from World War II with what Minsky called the paternalistic stage of capitalism or ma uh, managerial welfare state capitalism, where finance 
was relatively unimportant. It had been downsized. Wall Street had been massively downsized. Many banks had failed, and the ones that survived were very tightly constrained. We had a separation of investment banking from commercial banking in the Glass-Steagall Act, and so on. This is a very stable period of U.S. capitalism. In fact, it's known as the Golden Age. It's a, a rapid, growing capitalism where finance is not very important, where there's hardly any private sector debt, where there is a lot of government sector debt left over from World War II, which is a very safe asset. So financial portfolios were very safe because they were stuffed full of federal government debt. Okay? And in a sense, we leveraged that debt as the economy grew. Gradually, over time, the amount of private sector debt also grew. Gradually, over time, people forgot about the Great Depression. The memories faded. Risky behavior was mostly rewarded because the economy was growing strongly, because we didn't have financial crises. So risky behavior usually paid off in an environment where the economy and everything uh, is tending um, to grow. And that encouraged ever greater risk-taking. The other thing that was going on is that we were um, building up huge amounts of financial wealth. Okay? In part, this is due to the creation of pension funds and the creation of managed savings, mutual funds, and so on. Because we didn't have any Great Depressions and no serious recessions until the 70s, we never had economic calamities that wiped out this wealth. So it just continued to grow and grow and grow. And all of this wealth needed to be managed in order to get high returns. So we get the rise of money managers, and we get a new stage of capitalism he called money manager capitalism, okay? It's capitalism that is dominated by huge pools of money under management seeking the highest possible returns in an environment in which risky behavior is encouraged. Okay. We, uh, I will mention a, a few of the crises. We started to have crises again. The first financial crisis in the post-war period was in 1966. We had another in 1970. We had some in the um, recession, 1973, 74, 1980, and so on and so on. Okay? So we start having financial crises, but they're never big enough to wipe out the financial wealth. They only wipe out a small portion of it, and we just start all over again, uh, growing financial wealth. Now, other people have called this stage of capitalism uh, other terms, uh, Jamie Galbraith, the son of John Kenneth, wrote a book called The Predator State. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. I think he has an aspect of the problem. Uh, a lot of people have called it the era of financialization. I think that also captures an aspect of what was going on. This tends to be the more the left-wing Marxists use uh, this term. Uh, George Bush recognized it. He called it the ownership society. The ownership society, I think, also captures part of that, where we're moving wealth to the true owners, that is, the people above the 1%. Okay? 
the very, we're moving all ownership to the very top. That's the ownership society. That captures an aspect of this. Neoliberalism or neoconservatism, depending on whether you're American or European. Uh, the rise of shadow banking. So anyway, all, many people have recognized that there is something going on. There's something going on, long-term trend in the post-war capitalism, but I think Minsky got it best, okay? Um, so here, in very, very briefly summarizing Minsky's view, um, Minsky had this uh, saying that has become famous, uh, stability breeds instability. It was the stability of the post-war period that encouraged the creation of instability because it encouraged ever more risk-taking. Okay, So this is a natural process. This is what markets do. They will naturally become unstable. Um, we had the accumulation of financial assets or financial liabilities, two sides of the same um, coin. We had globalization and securitization. In fact, in a way, these two are very tightly connected. Securitization allowed banks and uh, even governments and individuals to buy financial, U.S. financial assets so that you could have German banks getting a piece of the U.S. real estate boom. Okay? That would not have been possible without securitization. So globalization of finance was enhanced by securitization. They came together. And finally, the movement to self-supervision, the belief that uh, sophisticated, large financial institutions can do a better job of regulating themselves than our regulators in the Fed or the FDIC or the OCC are able to do. And of, of course, they will want to control risk, so we let them use their own risk management techniques. They supervise themselves. The market will work better than regulators can work. All of those things came together um, to uh, help promote the transformation of the economy. Okay, I mentioned this is not the, the first crisis. I'll, I'll just start with the 1980s. We had the um, thrift crisis um, where the problem was a boom in commercial real estate, not in residential real estate. <clears throat> and we had banks um, uh, heavily financing um, less developed countries' debt. Okay, and so we had a crisis then. Uh, in, also in the 1980s, we had the LBO, Michael Milken boom, junk bond boom, okay, which crashed. In the 1990s, we had the new economy and NASDAQ, which, of course, crashed uh, when uh, Greenspan used the term irrational exuberance. And then in the 2000s, we had residential real estate and commodities markets. And I will talk about each of these two um, as we go along. The point is the crises come more frequently and they're more severe okay, from 1966 until 2006. They're more frequent and they're more severe. They're harder to get out of. So Minsky's statement was stability is destabilizing. Over the whole post-war period, we had lots of innovations in the financial sector. They tended to be riskier and riskier and riskier. If they had failed, they would have been wiped out. Okay? Financial institutions would have stopped doing it if they had led to failure. But the problem is that, for the most part, they didn't lead to failure. 
The reason, Minsky said, is because we, we now had the big bank and the big government to bail them out. The big bank is the Fed. The big government, of course, is just the size of government relative to the economy. In 1929, the federal government was 3% of GDP. We had a tiny government. Okay, now it runs 20 to 25% of GDP. So it's orders of magnitude bigger than it was in 29. Its budget moves counter-cyclically. So in a recession, the budget deficit goes up. That helps to prop up the economy. It prevents the recession from getting so bad that financial wealth is wiped out. Okay? And on top of that, the Fed enters as a lender of last resort to prevent financial institutions from failing. So because we don't have severe enough crises, managed money grows over time. We have a shift in the weight of the financial system away from the regulated and protected commercial banks and toward what people now call the shadow uh, banks. Um, but Minsky um, talked about managed money, which is a more general term than uh, shadow banks. It includes pension funds, mutual funds, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, and university endowments. I'm sure you guys have one. I'm from a state school. We don't really have that. But anyway, all of this money needs to be managed professionally. And so we have the evolution to a much riskier uh, financial system. So Minsky had this classification from hedge, which is the safest kind of finance, where it's easy to make your payments, toward Ponzi. And of course, this is named after Charles Ponzi. Not many people here are going to be old enough to know who he was. But he was the, the Bernie Madoff of his time. So Minsky called uh, a pyramid scheme, basically that's what Madoff ran and what Ponzi ran, pyramid-type scheme, um, which is absolutely certain to fail. That's a Ponzi, okay? And our economy was um, transitioned toward a Ponzi economy. So I don't know how much, can you read that, how much time we should uh, spend on this. So we have the stability of the post-war system. It encourages innovation, in the financial sector, competition, especially commercial banks versus the shadow banks, helps to spur the innovation, okay? But also, because we have the competition of others coming in, it tends to lower the spreads. That is, the difference between what uh, banks borrow at and what they earn on their assets. So the loan rate less the deposit rate. That gets squeezed. The only way that banks and other financial institutions can remain profitable as the spread declines is by increasing leverage ratios. So they increase leverage ratios. The typical ratio of a bank might be 10 to 1. Um, the typical shadow bank might be 30 to 1. And hedge funds might be 300 to 1. So we increase leverage ratios um, over time. That greatly increases credit availability which allows you to push up asset prices. You can borrow to buy assets, pushing their prices up, and then that encourages innovation. So we get a nice virtuous cycle here that is going to increase the fragility of the economy over time. Um, at the Fed, we had um, Greenspan, and gradually over time, what we did is we put uh, more faith in monetary policy and in the Fed rather than in fiscal policy and the treasury. So basically, we abandon the economy over time um, to the Fed, and this cult of Greenspan 
built up, Greenspan, the maestro, if you remember the uh, uh, book, um, where Greenspan is encouraging this transformation of the economy toward fragility. Okay? The, the new economy hype. Uh, the, his praise for new financial instruments. His praise for adjustable rate mortgages. The hybrid kind, which are the very worst kind. The ones where the interest rate jumps up after two or three years. Um, at the same time, the markets developed um, the notion that there was a Greenspan put. If you haven't heard this terminology, it just meant that um, don't worry, if anything goes bad, we know Greenspan's going to bail us out. Therefore, it's okay to take risk. And Greenspan built up this reputation. I don't know how many of you remember what happened right after Greenspan was appointed to head the Fed in 1987. We had a stock market crash. Greenspan immediately um, moved to help bail him out. And so over time, that was always the response. No matter what goes wrong, Greenspan's going to bail us out. Therefore, we can take more and more risk. Okay? Um, oh. What's behind the cape? Not much. Anyway, uh, Bernanke comes in and he uh, writes this really famous paper, I believe 2004. He argues that the U.S. economy, and, and in fact, really the whole world economy, had entered the era of the great moderation that central bankers had become so expert at controlling the economy and fine-tuning it that we were in a, an era of permanent stability. We're not going to have financial crises anymore. We don't have to worry about high inflation periods anymore. Okay? And as long as we keep inflation down, we don't have to worry about deep recessions anymore. What this tells financial markets is Riskiness has been greatly reduced. You don't have to worry about risk anymore. Um, so there, uh, Greenspan continually denied that there's any financial bubbles uh, in spite of that statement about irrational exuberance. Most of the time, he's arguing that you actually can't identify a bubble, so the government shouldn't do anything to try to fight uh, bubbles because we can't be sure they really are bubbles. And Bernanke continued um, in that mode. Anyway, what was the reality? The reality was that we were living through not an era of the great moderation. We were living through the biggest debt, equity, commodity, and real estate bubbles in human history. Okay? Um, we had the, all this financialization going on, and we were developing an economy that was extremely fragile, and it was not going to take much to cause a collapse of the financial sector and the economy as a whole. So now I, I'm going to um, give some evidence for that claim, that the economy was really doomed to fail. Okay, first, we can look at what we generally would call the real economy. So let's ignore the financing for a second. Let's look at the real economy. Economic growth from 1996 on, which, uh, of course, was President Clinton, was led by the private sector. We had private sector-led economic growth, and it was especially led by the household sector that was spending more than its income. In 1996, the U.S. private sector went into deficits, okay, sustained very large deficits, meaning they're spending more than their income, 
year after year after year for a decade. Nothing like this had ever happened before in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world that we know of. Okay? It was the biggest debt-fueled spending spree the world had ever seen. Now, uh, over the same time, it, if you looked at other English-speaking uh, nations, it actually turned out to be an English-speaking nation phenomena. <laughs> the U.S. wasn't the only one. Australia did it, too. Okay. The U.K. did it, too. For some reason, the English uh, language is linked to this uh, behavior. Um, anyway, it was highly unusual, dangerous, and ultimately unsustainable. It, it had to crash. And this is what Wynn Godley and I started writing about in 1998, um, that it's inevitable. This cannot go on forever. Now, we didn't believe it could go on more than two years. It went on 10. So we were overly pessimistic, in, in a sense, I guess. We never believed households would do this for 10 years in a row. Okay? Um, now I don't want to go too uh, deeply in this, but there is an accounting identity for every surplus, there has to be a deficit. Okay, they got to sum to zero. If we have three sectors, the sum of their balances has to be zero. If we have a domestic private sector, we have a U.S. Uh, government sector, including state and local governments, and we got a foreign sector. The sum of their balances have to be zero. Okay? We can plot the data, and this is a bunch of squiggly lines. Um, the blue shows the domestic private sector surplus. That means the private sector is saving, spending less than its income. And you can see that's always above the line until President Clinton. The um, red line is the government, de government sector deficit. You can see that we almost always have government sector running a deficit. Okay. And finally, the green line is the current account balance the U.S. used to run close to a balanced trade, but under President Reagan, we turned to a trade deficit nation, okay? And that um, tended to grow over time. But let me show you the same data in a different picture because it's much easier to see. Does it look like a mirror image? Above and below the zero line. Well, it is a mirror image. It has to be a mirror image because it's an identity. For every surplus, there is a deficit. Okay? So they have to match. And what we see is the government, the red, is almost always below the line. That means the government is almost always running a budget deficit. Okay? Since 1921. No, sorry. 1952.1. Okay? Um, the blue is the domestic private sector, that's households plus firms. They almost always save, which makes sense. You expect that households tend to save, right? They spend less than their income so that they can accumulate saving. And they can more than offset if the, if the firms run deficits. Always positive. Okay, and then finally the green is the capital account, which is the offsetting uh, uh, our current account deficit. Okay, anyway, you can see that they balance, they sum. What's interesting is when you um, look at the Clinton years, what happened? The private sector, for the first time ever, starts running a very large deficit, spending more than its income. Okay? 
And we go into the Bush recession, and for a short period of time, they actually retrench and reduce their spending, and they save a tiny bit. But as soon as the economy starts to recover, they go back to their old habits, and they start spending more than their income. They start running big deficits. Okay? Until the financial crisis, and now you can see they're running big surpluses. They're saving. They're scared to death. So they're no longer spending more than their income. They're doing what they always do in recessions, which is they cut back on spending and they try to save and pay down debt. Okay, what's interesting is that when you um, look at the government balance, you can see a couple of tiny surpluses that don't last very long, way back there in the 50s. And look, and all the way up until Clinton, the first budget surplus. The first one that was relatively large, 2.5% of GDP, and it was sustained for two and a half years. The first large sustained budget surplus since, does anyone know? When is the last time we had that in the US? If you guessed 1929, you would be right. 1929. Okay. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. In fact, if you go back in US history, We've only had seven times when the government ran a budget surplus. How many of those do you think were followed by depressions? Six. The seventh one was Clinton's. We don't have an official depression yet. So if we don't go into depression, it will be the first time ever that the U.S. ran a budget surplus, federal government budget surplus, without a depression. All we got was a global financial collapse. Okay. okay, so just keep that in mind when you listen to the budget deficit hysteria, the people who want to cut the budget deficit. Okay, let's turn to the financial problems, the home finance casino. What Wall Street did really is it turned residential real estate into the biggest casino in the world. That's what they did. They turned real property into something that could be leveraged in a financial casino. Almost everyone involved in home finance were rewarded by throughput, in other words, by the number of transactions. From the real estate broker all the way to the investment bank that securitizes the mortgages. They're rewarded by the number of transactions, not by whether these are good loans being made, not based on whether the homeowners are ever going to be able to make payments on the mortgages. That didn't matter. There was no incentive to assess the risk of the borrower okay? because you weren't rewarded on the basis of whether they actually made payments on the mortgages. And so we had this transformation of, we started out with low doc. That means low documents. You could be missing some of the documents and still get the mortgage. To no documents. You could get a mortgage with no documentation that you had a job, an income. To liar loans, where you come in and they encourage you to lie about your income. And even if you refuse to do it, the mortgage broker 
might take the signed documents and doctor them and increase your income so that the mortgage would go through. Um, to ninja loans, which is no income, no job, no assets, no problem, you get the mortgage. Okay? You think I'm joking? They advertised them this way. You could go on the web, you could find mortgage brokers advertising ninja loans. We make ninja loans. Okay. Um, do you think there was any question in the mind of the mortgage brokers or the banks that provided the funding that these were going to go bad? We're going to make loans to people with no income, no job, no assets. Do you think they might be suspicious about the quality of the mortgages you're going to make? Okay. As I said at the beginning, it was planned. The crisis was planned. It's what they wanted. There was a great hunger for risk. You were rewarded if you made riskier loans. Okay? The fees you earned would be higher because Wall Street wanted the riskiest mortgages because there is this belief there's a risk-return payoff the investors buying securities wanted higher returns. Okay? Managed money. They need high returns. It's like Lake Wobegon. Every money manager has to be above average or they lose their job. So they want highly risky assets. Okay? Um, and then what they did in the securitization process, this financial alchemy, you transform what are toxic mortgages, sure to go, to, sure to go bad, the homeowners are going to default. It's beyond any question whatsoever. You transform that into AAA rated assets. AAA means they are as safe as U.S. government debt. 85 per, you could take toxic waste mortgages and then 85% of the, the total value of the, that pool of mortgages would be rated AAA. Um, now, this new system is purportedly more efficient. Okay? This is what Wall Street and our regulators and our economists are all telling us. Oh, it's a much more efficient than the old Jimmy Stewart system, for people who remember the Jimmy Stewart movie, where you had thrifts making loans. Okay, let's compare the two. Here's the old model, Jimmy Stewart's bank. Okay? You've got a loan officer who knows the community. He knows the guy, the family that's coming in to get a, a home mortgage. Knows their job history, what kind of people they are, and decides to make a loan. Okay, so you need a loan officer. You need a bank teller to handle the deposits. Okay. You need to go record the purchase of the property down at the county recording office. So everyone knows who owns the property and who holds the mortgage. And then you hold that mortgage for 30 years, the people make the payments, and then you hand back the title to the property. They're free and clear. That's the old system. That's so inefficient. Okay, let's move to the new system. What does it require? You have a mortgage broker, you have an appraiser, you have a lender, you have a mortgage servicer who actually collects the mortgage payments, it's not the bank that made the loan. You've got MERS, which I'll say more about, created by the industry to bypass the county recording. And then they lose all the records. Okay. 
Uh, you have the mortgage securitizer. You have the credit raters. You have the rocket scientists that work at investment banks with proprietary models to rate the risk on all this stuff. You have the mortgage-backed security trustee, okay, who collects the payments from the servicer and passes them on to the investors. And then you create CDOs, and then you square the CDOs, then you cube the CDOs. These are all basically bets that the homeowner is going to default on the mortgage. And then you've got the investors who buy the securities. You've got the people trading the mortgages and the securities. You have accountants. You've got lawyers. This whole originate-to-distribute model, it's all based on uh, uh, pumping and dumping. You know that you're going to foreclose on the property. You're going to resell the property. And then you get to start the whole thing all over again. You get to make another mortgage because you've taken the property. You're going to resell it. You get to do all of this again. It's a much more efficient system. Okay? This is the claim. Anyway, this is how it turns out. On top of that, it's like Shrek says, it's like the onion. Every layer of this was fraudulent. Every single step also was fraudulent. Okay? From the um, predatory lending, where you're inducing people to sign onto mortgage terms that not only do they know you can't possibly make, so you're going to default, but also they know you actually would qualify for a better mortgage. Okay? And so the whole thing is based on trying to induce you to get the worst possible mortgage. Okay? The worst possible terms. All the way through to the foreclosures that are probably all fraudulent. Probably every home that is being foreclosed in America is a fraudulent foreclosure. It's actually a home theft. And we're going to have 13 million home thefts by next year on current projections. Okay, they're fraudulent. Now, why? Okay, why did they actually want this system? Could it have been more efficient? No. It wasn't more efficient than the old system. But it facilitated fraud because it was so complex. It was so complex, it was easy to hide the fraud. That is why they wanted it to be complex. Um, did anyone know that this was going on? Yes, everyone knew it was going on. The Fed knew that lender fraud was pervasive by 1999. Okay? And it only got worse after that. The Fed knew this, refused to do anything about it. And by the way, I have the 80% there, because so far, from what... Um, they can determine 80% of the fraud is by the lenders, not by the borrowers. There is borrower fraud. It did exist. There were people who scammed the system, who were home flippers, who were speculating on real estate. That did happen. But most of the fraud was by the lenders, not by the borrowers. The FBI warned in 2004 there's an epidemic of fraud in the real estate sector. Okay? But unfortunately, all of their white-collar criminologists had been put on terrorism instead of uh, financial fraud. Um, a similar story can be told about the, the thrift crisis. I wrote a, a paper in 94 looking at that, and I said, we had four causes of that crisis, the Volcker's monetarist experiment, deregulation, fraud, I put number three, it was very important, and then the whole Minsky story. And I, I think that 
the story today is very similar. So fraud is extremely important in um, telling the story. My colleague is Bill Black. Maybe you've seen him on um, Fox and other uh, TV shows or in the Michael Moore movie. Okay, he's an expert on fraud, and he. He came to UMKC, I think in 2004, and all I ever heard was fraud, 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 fraud. And I said, come on, Bill, I know there's fraud, but fraud isn't the explanation. He says, fraud is everywhere. And uh, gradually, over time, I became convinced it really it's fraud. It really is fraud. Okay, l let me uh, briefly talk about MERS. I know I'm going to run out of time, but um, just because people don't know about this. They don't know what's going on. I've been uh, writing about this uh, a lot at Huffington Post and other places. So the, the industry created this. It's the Mortgage Electronic Registry System. It was created, I think, about 1996. Okay? Um, so before <coughs> the uh, run-up of uh, the bubble, it was created to evade the county recording fees and um, uh, taxes that were uh, paid on the sale of a mortgage. So in the old days, as I said, you went to, when you buy a house, okay, it is recorded who now owns the property and who holds the mortgage. And every time a mortgage is sold, okay, the uh, banks had to go down and record the new holder of the mortgage. This system has been developed over the past 500 years in Western society as a way to ensure property rights. It's to ensure that you never have a bank show up at your front door claiming that you owe money and that they're going to take away your house. They can't do it because you say, let's go down to the county recording office and let's see if you actually do hold the mortgage. And you look and say, you don't own it. You can't take the house. Okay? That's why this system was created. Well, Wall Street banks didn't like this system because the average mortgage now is sold about a dozen times before it finally gets securitized. They would have to go down and record the sale 12 times and pay the 25 bucks each time. $25 doesn't sound like a lot, but you're talking about 66 million mortgages sold 12 times each, times $25 plus the hassle of going down there and recording. They didn't want to have to do this. Okay? So they created MERS, and the idea was that we'll only record the first one when you buy the house. But every bank will be a member of MERS. And so when one bank sells the mortgage to another bank, they're both members of MERS. It's like an inside sale. It's just an inside deal. We're all members of MERS. We don't need to go down and record it. MERS will keep the record as an electronic entry, and that's good enough. Okay? Um, now, it turns out that that actually is not good enough. Okay? The second reason that they wanted to do it is they know that there's going to be an explosion of foreclosures, and they want to speed the foreclosure process. Okay? And they thought that it will be much easier, so this is the way we're going to do it. A mortgage has two pieces. It has something called a note and something called the security. This isn't the mortgage-backed security, the security or the lien or the title to the property. In um, U.S. law, Supreme Court ruling, 
150 years ago says these two things have to be firmly attached to each other. They cannot be separated. If they are separated, the mortgage is no good. The homeowner gets the home free. Okay, if the lender separates these, they cannot foreclose. Okay, that's U.S. law. What Merce recommended was that the notes go to the servicers. These are not the owners of the mortgage. They're just usually a subsidiary of a bank. The four biggest banks also own the four biggest um, servicers. So Bank of America has a servicer. They collect the mortgage payments. So the idea is the servicer will know if the homeowner is behind in payments. So they'll start the foreclosure process. They'll have the note. They can go to the court. And they can say, see, we've got it. We're going to start foreclosure. Okay? The problem is that if the note is not with the mortgage security, the note is no good. They cannot be separated this way. The second problem is that um, the banks decided that holding these notes, that's so 20th century. Okay? We moved into the digital age. We don't need pieces of paper. We'll shred them. So they shredded them. Okay. They just destroyed them. The mortgage securities, they lost them. Okay. All they've got in is an electronic entry at MERS. Okay. MERS is a company that has 66 million mortgages registered. It has 50 employees. Most of those are secretaries. It had an enforcement auditing staff of 15. 15 people to make sure that the recordings are accurate and done at all. Okay? You got a you're a bank, I'm a bank. We agree you're going to buy the mortgage from me. Who does the recording? Okay? The purchaser voluntarily decides to record it. They enter it into the uh, MERS registry system. Okay? Purely voluntary, with no auditing done. The banks make lots of mistakes. They enter the wrong address. They miss one number. Okay? And a bank comes and forecloses on your neighbor. And it happens all the time. Okay? And all there, is, there no longer is any paperwork. They destroyed it or lost it. Dog ate it. Okay? So the, the judges were... Ju judges, you know, they... Typically, they believe the bank. The bank says, this deadbeat hasn't been making mortgage payments. In the past, it was true. Okay? And so they would let them foreclose. And even if they had lost the paperwork, they had to file a lost note affidavit. The bank officer signs a statement. We had the note. We know we had the note, but we can't find it. The judge would let it go through because he believed the bank. Okay? And suddenly they start seeing case after case, case, you know, tens of cases coming in, and the bank has lost the note. And they start looking at the signatures, different banks, and uh, they've got the same person signing. You heard about the Burger King kids, right? The, the bank started hiring Burger King kids to come in and do robo-signing. Okay? Named them vice president. Kids who didn't know what a mortgage is. They're sitting there signing their name. 
And so the judges started getting suspicious. They started throwing some of these out. They said, you come back when you find the paper. The banks are not going to find the paper. They don't have it. Okay? And just recently, the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in New York ruled that the, every aspect of the MERS business model is illegal. Every piece of the business model is illegal. Okay? Um, and that is now a precedent, and we'll see how this goes. Now, so what does that mean? They've broken the clear chain of title. Because they did, it's not enough that they now find the paperwork. Let's say that they do, or that they get really good forgers. Okay, so they can come in and say, ah, I can prove I own the mortgage. The judge is going to ask them, okay, who did you buy it from? They have to sign, they assign the mortgage over to the, uh, the bank that is trying to foreclose. And you say, okay, fine, okay, so we see that signature. How did they get the mortgage? Okay, you, it had to have been assigned to them. Every step of the way, it has to be mortgaged from that county recording all the way to the bank that is trying to do the foreclosing. Every purchase and sale has to be recorded on the, the document, and it's not recorded in the county offices anymore. Okay? So that's what's called a, clean, a clear chain of title. It probably doesn't exist for any mortgages that have been originated since 1996 if they were securitized. Doesn't exist. Okay, so what does that mean? It means the foreclosures are illegal. The banks do not have legal standing to foreclose on the property. It means that the homeowners cannot be foreclosed on. Now the banks can still sue them for the mortgages that they owe. They can still sue them for payment. They may or may not win, but they cannot take the property away if you saw the Michael Moore movie where Representative Captor was saying, stay in your homes, they don't have the legal saying, that, that is what she was saying. She um, was one of the first to catch on to this fraud. So the foreclosures are illegal. Second, the securitizations are illegal. Because the securitization, in order to securitize the mortgages first, okay, you've got to have the documents because actually the documents together, the note and the security, have to be held by the trustees of the securities, of those mortgage-backed securities. The investment banks will designate a trustee to hold the documents that back up the mortgage-backed securities that are held by investors, including pension funds. Okay? The trustees don't have the documents, even though the trustees all signed statements that said they had the documents. That allowed the securitization to go forward. They never had the documents. The securities are no good. That's one reason why the securities are no good. The second reason why the securities are no good is they don't meet the representations made by the securitizers to the investors. The mortgages don't meet the standards. And the banks that securitize the mortgages knew they didn't meet the standards. How did they know that? They hired outside parties to do due diligence not so they could warn the buyers, the investors in the securities, but because the banks then went back to the mortgage brokers and said, we're going to pay less for these mortgages because we know that they're trash. And they duped the investors. And that is why PIMCO, the biggest um, uh, bond uh, 
company in the world, Fannie Mae and the New York Fed is suing the banks who securitized the mortgages because they invested in these fraudulent securities. Think about it. The New York Fed is suing its own banks, the banks it regulates, because it says, you guys sold us trashy securities. It's like parents that sue their children for their bad upbringing, right? <laughs> you kids, you really weren't raised right. We need to sue you. This is Timmy Geithner's Fed that refused to regulate Wall Street banks, bought securities from them, and now is suing them because the securities are no good. Okay, and finally, U.S. property rights are toast. MERS handled 66 million mortgages. There's no clear chain of title. Okay. The, uh, the record keeping by MERS, the judges have all found, you know, is a complete shambles. There's no record of who owns property or who holds mortgages anymore in the United States. It's going to take a very long time to sort it out. And the message is, don't buy any foreclosed property. The title insurers will no longer, the four biggest ones, will no longer certify clear title anymore on any foreclosed property because they know it's hopeless. So anyway, this is what Wall Street did. This is where we are now. Uh, I, mean, I know I have to speed up. Very briefly, we've all, not only did we have the biggest real estate uh, boom, we also had the biggest commodities market boom. And the two things are linked. Because as real estate started to cool off, managed money moved into commodities. At first, they actually bought physical commodities. You had money managers buying oil and storing it. You had them buying corn and storing it in silos until they drove up storage costs to an all-time high. It became too expensive to buy it and hoard it for speculative purposes, so they started buying futures contracts. Okay? But the effect is the same. What it did is it drove up commodities prices. Does anyone remember summer of 2008 what happened to gasoline prices? It was caused by U.S. pension funds. They drove up oil prices. Okay? And in uh, fall of 2008, uh, Stupak and Lieberman started investigating them, and they got scared. They said, you know, this is going to be terrible if our workers find out that we're using their pension funds to drive up oil prices, gasoline prices. They're going to get really pissed at us. Plus, Congress is going to start regulating us and so they, they pulled out one-third of their funds in the fall of 2008. What happened to oil prices? $150 a bar barrel to $49 a barrel. That's what happened. And oil prices and other commodities prices were down for a while. But then all heck broke loose. There's not, what else can you buy? Managed money has gone back into commodities. And what is happening to commodities prices? They're booming again. Okay. Just as some evidence, 2004 to 2008, we had eight commodities prices that rose by 500%. I have a friend who's an expert on commodities prices. He's looked back through human history. There's never been a boom this big. You never had eight commodities 
whose prices go up by 500% in four years. Okay? Here they are. The average for the top 25 is 203%. This was caused by managed money. This was not a supply and demand event. It was speculators going in and buying this stuff up. Okay, the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the rise of managed money. There's too much managed money chasing too few good assets. So they have the capacity to boom any asset that they start to buy. There's just so much of it. Not even American real estate is a big enough asset class to prevent them from booming the price up. Okay? Let me give you some evidence on this. So let's quickly look at the volumes of assets and liabilities. We can call this financialization and the competition with the um, shadow banks. This shows total uh, debt, financial liabilities, relative to GDP for the U.S. from 1916 up to 2008. Um, you can see that we had a peak, okay, uh, 1929, we hit three times. So there was three, the debt to GDP ratio was three times. We had three times as much debt as we had GDP. Okay? We collapsed into the Great Depression. What happened? Private sector debt collapsed. Why? Bankruptcies. Bankruptcies eliminated the private sector debt. We had growth of government debt. Why? Because of World War II. And then, as I said, we sort of leveraged that in the post-war period as the economy grew rapidly. You see the, the government debt ratio going down, not because we got rid of the debt, it's because GDP grew fast. That lowered the ratio. But anyway, then you can see debt starts to grow. Private sector debt grows across a variety of categories there. Households and especially financial institution debt. <clears throat> Here's a... Another way of looking at financialization of the U.S. economy, this shows the pink line is value added. So that's just sort of, if you take the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, which is finance, the financial sphere, relative to GDP, in the early post-war period, it's just above 10%. So about 10% of GDP is the finance sector. That grows to... 20% of GDP over the period. So it doubles. As a share of profits, it grows from 10% of GDP to 40% of GDP on the verge of the crisis. And by the way, if we continue to 2010, they're back to 40%. The fire sector is getting 40% of profits. Okay? Um, so yes, the financial sector appears to have recovered. They're, they're getting... 40% of corporate profits. The, the other thing I wanted to point out is the decreasing weight of the banking sector. Commercial banks, which were the most heavily regulated part of the financial sector, were 60% of um, assets. They're now 20% of assets. So commercial banks became much less important. At the same time, the growth of managed money, what I mentioned before, the pension funds, the sovereign wealth funds, and so on became much bigger as a percent of total assets. So we had financialization, and this meant a layering and a leveraging of debt. So rising debt. What is debt? 
Minsky always put it this way. It's a prior commitment of future income flows. You're committing your future income to service the debt. Each dollar of income flows now is servicing $5 of debt. So every dollar U.S. income is servicing $5 of debt. Okay, so that is a leverage ratio of 5 to 1. It's too much to service out of income flows. Okay, it's too difficult to service $5 of debt out of every dollar of income. And so the whole system relies on what Minsky calls Ponzi finance. We've got to have falling interest rates so you can get better interest rate terms and rising asset prices so that you can borrow more against your financial assets because relative to your income, you can't uh, continue to borrow. Much of that debt is actually owed by financial institutions. And this is another way of looking at uh, financialization of the economy. That is the growth of the debt of financial institutions. This is financial institutions owing mostly other financial institutions, indebted to each other. Okay. And that has just grown uh, tremendously, you can see, as a percent of GDP. That alone is more than GDP. What banks owe to other banks is more than our GDP. That is a layering of debt on our economy. Okay. Um, final picture. Uh, people who have read Keynes's general theory will know he makes a, a statement like this, that when speculation dominates uh, over enterprise, enterprise means you know, the real production part of the economy, um, then the job is likely to be ill done. If you look at the, what is the average holding period for stocks, on the eve of the Great Depression, it was about a year. The average stock was only held one year. That's an indication that it is speculation dominating. People are buying stocks, hoping the price goes up, and then they sell them. Okay? You can see in the golden era of capitalism, it's more like six, seven years on average. So speculation is much less important. And then finally, where do we go? Where we were in 1929. Speculation is dominating over enterprise again. Okay, what happened in 2006, 2007 to, to bring on the recession? Um, I say there's a triple threat. Three things happened in this period that uh, led to the uh, problems in the economy. The first is that tax revenues were growing very rapidly. In spite of what everyone thinks about the fiscal stance of the U.S. government, it's actually chronically too tight. It is biased to run budget surpluses, which, as I implied before, is bad for the economy. The tax rates are actually too high. I know I sound like um, supply-siders under Reagan. The tax rate is too high given how much our government spends. When our economy grows reasonably well, let's say GDP is growing at 5%, tax revenue grows at 15%. It starts sucking income and wealth out of the economy, and it slows us down. Okay? It makes it very hard to grow. And I wrote a paper on this in 2006. I said, this is going to kill the economy. You can't have tax revenue growing three times faster than income and GDP. Okay? So that was the first thing. 
The second thing is the Fed had started to raise interest rates in 2004. I know everyone claims the Fed caused the crisis because it kept interest rates too low. No, the Fed started raising interest rates in 2004. Okay? And what that did is it um, caused the adjustable rate mortgages to all increase. And it turns out, you know, the subprime mortgages made before 2004, those mostly worked out okay. Okay? The reason is people actually were able to refinance into better mortgages. After 2004, the Fed started raising interest rates. When they refinanced, they couldn't refinance into low enough interest rates. Okay? And so they defaulted instead. Beginning in 2006, they defaulted when their, their two-year very low rate, 1% or 2%, kicked up to 12%. They defaulted. They couldn't refinance. The third thing was the oil price spike um, that I already talked about. That squeezed people's income. They had less available to make their mortgage payment because they had to buy gasoline so they could drive to work. So these three things together um, were sucking income out of the household sector made it hard for them to make their mortgage payments. Default rates started to go up. So we got a, a financial crisis. <clears throat> we got a deep recession. We lost over 8 million jobs. But of course, we've had people graduating from high school and college and uh, who normally would have gone into jobs, into the labor force. So really, and people had to take part-time work rather than full-time work. We got about 25 million people who want full-time jobs that can't get them. Uh, as I already said, we're going to have 13 million foreclosures by next year. The government deficit is um, growing rapidly as private saving returned to positive territory. But we've got deficit hysteria in Washington. They're all saying we can't possibly afford to continue to spend. Part of the problem is that the population confuses the really small stimulus package that we had that's only about $800 billion, plus there were a couple other little packages, so let's call it a trillion versus what they did to bail out Wall Street, which is about $25 trillion in the form of purchases of toxic waste, lending, and guaranteeing bad assets. So Uncle Sam is on the hook for about $25 trillion for bailing out Wall Street. Uncle Sam only spent $1 trillion to try to bail out Main Street. And the population is very mad about this, but they confuse the two issues. Okay, and so now there is all of the pressure to actually reduce government spending. Um, <clears throat> this uh, picture shows why the budget deficit increased. It was not the stimulus package. The stimulus package is mostly consumption-type expenditures by government. It's the purple line there. You can see it bump up a bit for two years as we spent the stimulus funds. But look at tax revenue. It is collapsing at a rate of 10% per year. Total tax revenue flowing into the federal government is declining by 10% per year. That is why we have a budget deficit of $1.3 trillion. It's not because the government's spending too much. It's that people lost their jobs and they're not paying income taxes. Okay, that is why we're getting a budget deficit. If we recover, the tax revenue will come back and the deficit is going to be reduced. <coughs> So we had a little bit of a stimulus that came from the fiscal policy. Most of the policy response has been by the Fed. We had first phase was credit ease, second phase was QE1, and now we're moving into the third phase of QE2. QE just means that the Fed buys assets from banks and credits their reserves. That's all it means. That's all it does. So 
I have um, some pictures here. This shows you how much the Fed spent buying stuff from banks. Okay? Because Federal Reserves, the, the reserve deposits of banks, go from less than a trillion to over two trillion. That is QE2. Right, sorry, QE1. Okay? The Fed injects a trillion dollars of excess reserves into the banking system by substituting reserves for other assets that they had. What were the assets? Mostly mortgage-backed securities. The Fed bought toxic waste securities from the banks. Okay? It also did some other things, including lending to foreign central banks. What are they doing? They're trying to bring back money manager capitalism. Okay, that is the whole goal of this. Uh, and right now they think they've succeeded. I don't think they're going to. Um, let me say a couple words about Japan, because Japan already went through a very similar thing at the end of the 80s and early 1990s. Um, they had rapid growth in the in 1980s. Uh, Japan was the envy of America, although most Americans were never told that uh, the Japanese were stimulating growth by running big budget deficits. Okay, so they had rapid growth, and then they also had a real estate boom in the late 1980s. Uh, the the boom was sufficient that the budget actually moved into a surplus, so they had their budget surplus. Um, the economy collapsed, and now they have had 20 years of recession with deflation and with real estate prices falling for 20 years. Okay? We've had real estate prices falling since 2006. They've had it for 20 years. Okay? What was their response? QE. They did exactly what Bernanke is doing. Exactly. And it has not worked for 20 years. And now we're going to try it. Okay? And just to show you that we are following their path, here is inflation. We're blue, they're gray. We're following their path. What is their path? Eventually we get to deflation. Price is going down. Here is the budget deficit. A budget surplus. Economy collapses. Budget deficit. And they've had a budget deficit now for 20 years. Okay, almost. And here is the response of the central banks. Bank of Japan, they lower their interest rate to zero. They keep it at zero for 12 years, and they don't recover. What did we do? Well, we lowered ours to zero quicker than they did, and we might hold it there for the next 20 years, and we're going to see we're going to have the same results that they have. Lowering the interest rates is not going to cause the economy to recover. Um, Okay, where are we now? I think the banks are toast. I think they are massive. Here, I'm only talking about the top 10 banks. Okay? It's only the top 10 banks that did all the stuff I've been talking about. And it's really concentrated in the top four. Those banks are toast. So, uh, at best, they can pursue homeowners for payment, but they can't legally foreclose. That doesn't mean they're not going to illegally steal homes. They're going to continue to try to do that. They owe recording fees that are hundreds of billions of dollars because now the counties are suing them, saying, you guys didn't record the property sales. You got to pay the recording fees. They owe back taxes because uh, securitized mortgages had a tax advantage. 
And now all the investors owe taxes on them because the securities were fraudulent. They don't meet the, the IRS requirements. So they're going to force the banks to make the payments. They have to take back trillions of dollars in toxic waste securities, maybe up to $7 trillion worth. There is no way on earth the banks can handle taking back $7 trillion worth of toxic waste. And they've committed all kinds of fraud that is go-to-jail fraud. And so thousands, thousands of bankers are going to go to jail if they get prosecuted. And you, you might think it's very far-fetched to think that they're ever going to prosecute a banker and throw him in jail. 1,000 thrift top management went to prison because of the saving and loan crisis. 1,000. This fraud is many times worse than that. Many more people involved. Um, and not all of the thrift uh, uh, management that went to jail were petty little thrift owners. Remember Charles Keating. Charles Keating also went to prison, and he was powerful enough to buy five senators. And he went to prison anyway. Okay? So look for Bob Rubin and people like that too. It can happen. What are we going to do? I know, I know that uh, uh, you want me to finish on an upbeat note. Okay, what can we do? Why don't we do what the free marketers always claim we should do? Let the market work. What would the market have done in 2007? It would have closed down all the big banks. Okay? It was the right response. The market was right. Let's let the market operate. It will close those banks down within a few days. You just say, no, the government is not going to bail them out. We are no longer going to buy their toxic waste from them. Okay? We're going to let them fail. The market will close them down. Now, unfortunately, that means that all the managed funds are also going to fail. Okay? Because they're sitting here holding toxic waste that they would like to put back on the banks that are going to fail. Therefore, can't take it back. But also, our pension funds are heavily invested in the equities of these top banks. And those equities are going to go to zero. So our pension funds are going to fail. Hedge funds, mutuals, sovereign wealth funds, and so on. Okay, they're going to fail. Okay, that's what the market would do. Minsky called this a simplification of the financial system. That sounds nicer. We're going to simplify the system. We're just going to get rid of all of that debt which also means get rid of all those assets. We're going to definancialize the economy. That's what the Great Depression did. The Great Depression simplified the financial system by many of them failing and defaulting on the rest. So we got rid of debt that way. That's what we used to always do to get rid of debt. We'll emerge with no private debt and massive government debt, just like we did after World War II. We're going to have a robust, healthy economy, okay, without all the financial debt and financial assets. We're, then we need to um, constrain the financial system, just like we did in uh, the 30s, with new laws, with supervision, and actually by hiring regulators and supervisors who want to regulate and supervise, which would be a new thing at the Fed and the Treasury. They haven't wanted to do that since the Reagan years. Okay, they only hired people who were against regulation to be the regulators. So we need to hire people who actually want to do the regulation. We need to return to underwriting. Underwriting just means you have a loan officer who actually looks to see, do you have a job? 
Can you prove it? Can you show me you your W-2 forms? Prove that you've got income? Okay, that's what an underwriter does. Need to return to that system rather than the originate to distribute where you don't care. And the banks should hold all their loans to maturity. Don't allow a bank that is protected and supervised by the government with the government backstopping them and guaranteeing that they can't default in their liabilities through FDIC, say, you must hold all of your loans and your mortgages to maturity. You can't sell them. That gives the proper incentive to make sure that they make good loans. Um, and uh, finally, we're going to have to find a way to get the economy to grow, and it can't be financial bubbles, because that's what we've been relying on, bubbleonia. We can't rely on bubbleonia. We're going to have to actually grow the economy in another way. Not by propping up Wall Street, we're going to have to create jobs. So we're going to need a new New Deal like we had in the um, 1930s so that we focus on Main Street instead of Wall Street. Oh, someone else's idea. Um, conclusions. This is the last slide. Um, we need to reduce concentration in the financial sector. I was talking to students, uh, the, the pizza thing, uh, about that. There really is no justification to have a $2 trillion bank. We have a couple of those. There are no economies of scale of banking in the $2 trillion range. You just get a financial institution that is too complex to regulate and even too complex for the CEO to manage, and it just encourages fraud. Okay, And that's really the main reason they want to be big. It's easier to run fraudulent schemes because no one can tell what they're doing. It's too complex. Make them retain the risk on their balance sheets. Don't let them shift it off so that they have the right incentive. We need the government to play a role in re-regulating and re-supervising. And we need to think about uh, the government taking a, a, a bigger role in the direct provision of financial services. Maybe the government ought to run the payment system. That would allow us to get rid of the FDIC which basically is guaranteeing private bank liabilities. Maybe it makes more sense that the government just run the payment system directly and then don't guarantee the banks. Um, direct lending in some areas to serve public purpose. We actually have already done that for people who follow student loans. In the old days, I went to school on a national defense student loan. Okay? The, the government directly provided the loan to me at 3% interest. In the interest of national defense, I studied psychology as an undergraduate. Okay? Then we experimented, let's let the banks lend, and the government will guarantee the loans. Okay? This is a crazy idea. Why? If it's in the public interest for students to go to college, the government ought to make the loans at 3%. We don't need to put in the financial intermediary in between. And we actually have moved back to that system. Okay, we've gone back to direct loans. So there is one example, and uh, we could come up with other ones. And then uh, finally, we need to stop viewing banks as private financial institutions. They are not private financial institutions. They cannot be private financial institutions if the government is standing behind them, if the government is guaranteeing them and saying, we will not let you fail. Really, we should view them as private private-public partnerships, and that means that the government, we the people, should have a right to tell them what they can do. Why should they be able to uh, 
engage in credit default swaps, which essentially banks are just betting that homeowners, that firms, that local governments, that foreign countries are going to default on their debt. That's what banks are doing now. Why would we allow a regulated bank to make bets on failure? It serves no public purpose. Let's force banks that have government guarantees to actually operate in the public purpose. And if their activity doesn't have a public purpose, don't allow it. Okay? So this would be, um, I think, uh, moving toward a correct view of what banks ought to do. Okay, I'm done. Sorry, it went over a bit. <laughs> There we go. During our question and answer session, we'll have two students circulating with mics, so please wait for the microphone to reach you before asking your question, and we'd like to give priority to Dickinson students and faculty in asking questions. Okay. Um, this is clearly a fraud on a massive scale, and, and you say that thousands of people could go to jail for it. But, I mean, I was reading a couple of, a while ago, Matt Tybee in Rolling Stone talking about how they've got these courts in Florida where they get retired judges and they just go through this stuff and, and, and no justice is being served. Don't you think that the government is way too scared of this Ponzi scheme collapsing, so there's quite the disincentive in terms of actually prosecuting these crimes? Okay, uh, as I said, um, (coughs) judges are used to trusting banks, and so it is true that um, judges have been tending to side on the side of bankers, but as the homeowners get wiser, as the public defenders get wiser, and as the judges get wiser, they're actually now starting to rule on the side of the homeowners, in about half of the states, because only half of the states have a judicial process for foreclosure. The other half, the banks can foreclose without going to a judge. And so the, the only thing that the homeowners can do is sue them, sue the bank after the fact and try to get their home back. Okay? So it's, I do admit this is a real uphill battle. Even in judicial states, if the judges are favoring the uh, banks... The good news is people are banding together. There are lots of websites now for homeowners who are facing foreclosures so they can uh, get advice from others who have gone through the process, and we're starting to see class action suits. So class action suits will be uh, a way to bring attention and to stop some of the foreclosures. So I think that 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 will help. The, The other piece of good news is the investors are also suing the banks, And investors like PIMCO have really deep pockets. They can hire the best lawyers. The New York Fed, they're going to be hiring very good lawyers to go after the banks. And so there it's much easier to be optimistic that um, they are going to force the banks to start taking back stuff, which will lead to insolvency. They don't have the capital to take the stuff back. As far as 
in, imprisoning uh, the frauds in uh, the banks. Again, of course, it is very difficult. And as long as the Obama administration is looking the other way and uh, refusing to try to find fraud, they're not going to find fraud unless they look. But again, there is some good news. There are 50 state attorneys general who are all very unhappy with what Washington is doing. And they have banded together, and they are starting to go after the banks. Attorneys general, a lot of these guys would like to be governor, and one way (coughs) to uh, enhance your campaign is to win a big case against a hated bank. And we have some really hated banks. Bank of America and Goldman Sachs, you win a case against them and uh, you're well on your way to being governor. So there are attorneys uh, general going after them. I think that will embarrass the Obama administration enough that they will start going after some of them too. So I, I, I don't think we should be too pessimistic about prosecuting the frauds. I think it will happen. It, it's going to take a while, but it's going to happen. When you were talking about uh, letting the market run its course and uh, letting the assets or the, the financial, letting them default the loans, how would that affect the people holding the loans, especially those in the private sector and consumers? Yeah. Well, consumers mostly don't hold the loans, but they have pension funds that have securities and also have the equities of the banks that are go- going to fail. And so there, there are two ways to approach this. One, we already have the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. So it's like the FDIC for pensions. And they are supposed to come to the rescue of pension funds that um, go under. Now, unlike the FDIC, they don't do the up to $250,000 we pay dollar for dollar. They will make the pensions take a, a cut. Uh, and if they are a defined uh, benefit pension, they have to get converted over to defined contribution, which is a much less generous uh, pension for people. Um, so we do have something to protect pensions, but uh, people are, are going to lose. Okay, so what are we going to do about that? Um, well, one is we could try to revive money manager capitalism. That's what they're doing now try to prop up the whole pension system and get it back to where it was in 2006 so that it can bubble up commodities again. Okay, that would be one solution. Um, I don't think that that's a good idea. I think money manager capitalism is a fundamentally flawed system that will just create another speculative boom and then another collapse like this one. So I think we should move away from private, so, uh, so heavy reliance on private pensions and on private savings as a a safety net for people, especially in their retirement years. I think that we should instead move to a nationalized federal guarantee of a decent retirement for all Americans through Social Security. And that means increasing the benefits that Social Security promises to pay and strengthening that promise so that we have 
a public retirement rather than a private pension. The advantage of the public retirement is you don't need any managed money. You don't need any trust funds. Okay? We don't need to accumulate vast sums of money that some money manager will use to run up oil prices again. Okay? Because Social Security as a federal government guarantee doesn't need any trust funds. It just makes the payments as they come due. Okay? And it does that by crediting bank accounts. That's a whole other topic, the one I gave Franklin Marshall last night how the government spends and how it can always afford Social Security. So anyway, that's the direct direction I would go. As far as the hedge funds, they're going to go down. The hedge funds are supposed to be playing with rich people's money, people so rich they can afford to lose it. That's the whole idea behind hedge funds. Hedge funds are risky, and they only risk rich people's money, and rich people can take the loss. There never was a government guarantee that the hedge fund wouldn't go bankrupt, and hedge funds do go bankrupt. So I wouldn't worry too much about them. Uh, sovereign wealth funds, well, those are foreign governments. Should the U.S. government bail out sovereign wealth funds that were dumb enough to invest in U.S. Uh, toxic waste securities? I don't think we should bail them out. Let them lose. So anyway. So you argue for um, increasing the role of government in regulating and supervising a reformed financial system. Um, would that come in the form of a new agency, or would that be empowering the Treasury and the Fed with more supervisory roles? I mean, how would you see these regulations uh, being implemented? Yeah. Uh, over the past couple decades, we've gone back and forth about discussing See, banks are regulated by the Fed, by the OCC, by the FDIC, and by state banking regulators. It could be combinations of these four, and they've got different agendas, and the banks play one off against another, so there's a race to the bottom. They all deregulate so that they can keep the banks under their uh, uh, control. Um, so they've ta always talked about consolidating all of this, okay? And... Uh, that probably is a good idea. For a while, during the Clinton administration, we thought it would be consolidated at Treasury, and then more recently, they talked more about consolidating at the Fed. Uh, my view is the Fed has consistently shown it has absolutely no interest in regulating and supervising banks, so I definitely would not give it to them. Timmy Geithner ran the New York Fed, oversaw this whole thing, and let them do anything they wanted to do. Okay? I think they've proven they are failures at regulate. Remember what Geithner said before Congress. One, uh, in testimony, uh, he was challenged by, uh, I don't remember which congressperson said, but uh, you used to be a regulator. And Geithner said, I was never a regulator. He was the head of the New York Fed. <laughs> it was his job description to regulate. He says, I was never a regulator. Okay? So his job description was regulator. He said, I never regulated. I'm opposed to it. Okay, this is the, the Fed's attitude. So I think it has to go in Treasury, okay, and it probably should be the OCC. Hi. Um, you were talking about 
deficit hysteria and also kind of suggested that the United States shouldn't worry so much about reducing the deficit. Um, and I suppose my, what my question would be is, how do you think this will affect uh, foreigners' interest in continuing to finance our debt and take out U.S. Treasury bonds? Okay. All right. Huge topic. Foreigners do not finance our government's deficit. They can't. Foreigners cannot create dollars. Only we create dollars. Every dollar that a foreigner has came from us. All they're doing is giving back the dollars that we sent to them. Okay? So they're not financing our um, deficits. Actually, the, the way that the U.S. federal government finances a deficit is by net crediting bank accounts. They do a keystroke. There's someone at the Treasury with a little computer like this in front of him, and when he wants to credit someone's account, government spending, maybe it's a Social Security recipient, presses a keystroke. That's how the government spends. They don't go to China and beg to the Chinese, please, please give us some dollars so that we can afford to pay our Social Security recipients. No, they don't do that. They push a key, and the money appears in the bank account of the Social Security recipient. So we actually do not borrow from the Chinese. There is no balance sheet that you can draw to show me that the U.S. federal government borrows from Chinese. Okay, what actually happens? When the U.S. runs a uh, trade deficit, the, someone in China gets a U.S. dollar deposit okay, at a U.S. bank. Chinese banks don't want to hold U.S. dollars. They send the deposit on to the Bank of China, which credits the Chinese bank with RMB reserves at the central bank. Okay? The uh, Bank of China now holds a U.S. dollar deposit, and they would prefer to have an earning asset. So what they do is they go buy a treasury. Okay? So that's a substitution of a low or non-earning dollar asset to a U.S. government treasury debt in which the U.S. government promises to use a keystroke to credit it with interest. Okay, and so someone at the treasury every month credits them with interest through a keystroke. That's how they pay the interest. Okay, and we can do that forever. Uh, the, the U.S. government has run a budget deficit in uh, 190 out of the past 230 years. So budget deficits are not unusual. They are the typical case, 190 out of 230 years. The U.S. government outstanding debt stock has been growing on trend since 1837. Okay? Not every year, because I told you we have had seven budget surpluses that reduce the outstanding debt stock a little bit, okay? periodically, always followed by a depression. Um, but on trend, it's been going up. Up and up and up and up, year after year after year after year, okay? Um, is that sustainable? If you've been doing something since 1837, do you think that you might be able to do it until 2037? Okay. It looks plausible that something we've been doing for a very long time is sustainable. The U.S. government has only been out of debt in one year, 1837. President Jackson ran a budget surplus, promised to retire all the debt. He was very fiscally conservative. He retired the debt in 1837, and we went into a depression. And we've been in debt ever since. 
So anyway, I think it's perfectly sustainable. Will the budget deficit stay at 10% of GDP? Not if we recover. If we recover, the budget deficit is going to go down. There is an identity. I showed you the, the mirror diagram. If our private sector wants to save, if it wants to spend less than its income, holding our trade account constant, just for the purposes of thinking about this, that means the government must run a deficit. The other side of a private sector surplus is a budget deficit. The only way the private sector can save is if our federal government runs a budget deficit. That's the only way we can do it. Things are even worse for the U.S. because we're going to run a current account deficit anytime the economy is growing. Okay? Just because the rest of the world wants to export to us. Their net saving in dollars is very high. The Chinese want dollars. In spite of what the uh, uh, premier says, they want dollars. Otherwise, they wouldn't be selling us all the stuff. They sell us the stuff to get dollars. Okay? When they decide they don't want to sell us stuff, then they won't want the dollars. Okay? The only way they can sell us the stuff is to take the dollars. So that is why they're taking them. And there is no alternative to the dollar. I know people think, oh, the dollar is going to lose its reserve currency status. There is no alternative to the dollar except the RMB 50 years from now. Okay? But the Chinese can't move into something else. What are they going to do? Buy Greek government debt? They are not going to do that. Okay? The only country, everyone says they'll go into euros. You can't go into euros. You go into individual country debt. You're not going to buy Greek debt. You're not going to buy Italian debt, Spanish debt, and so on and so on. What are you going to buy? German debt. There's not enough German debt in the universe to satisfy the Chinese. Germany is too small, and Germany is fiscally conservative. They rely on mercantilist policies. They export to the rest of Europe so that they don't have to run budget deficits. They force budget deficits on Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal. Okay? So the only source of Euro debt is the countries China is not going to buy debt from. So it can't happen. There is, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Tina, there is no alternative. There is no alternative to U.S. government debt. And the world knows this. In spite of the hysteria in Washington about the U.S. government going bankrupt, the rest of the world is buying U.S. government debt, happily. Which is why the interest rates are not spiking up in spite of the hysteria. Because everyone knows it's safe debt. Is there another one? We have time for one more question this evening. Hi. Um, I like your proposal and saying that like, we need to go for a more healthy way. But in that sense, wouldn't it be a problem that like, if you go by the healthy way while others going for a more risky way, you can't complete you can't complete within them because they I mean they are willing to take more risks and then you are taking a safe way and earning step by step while others are jumping. In that sense would it be the problem because like I mean it's not just you know, American in the world, we have many other countries and if they are more aggressive 
It seems that we they will win from the game. So how will you think about this conversation? Okay, if I understood, um, the um, th there is this fear. What if we really clamp down on Wall Street? The the uh, New York and London are the two centers of, for global finance. Um, and there's a bit in Asia, too. Um, so if we downsize Wall Street and, and we tightly constrain our financial system, then we're going to lose um, all of the really risky stuff to London. I say, that's an improvement. Let them have it. Okay. If they want to periodically crash their economy like Wall Street just crashed ours, let them do it. Okay? We would be much better off if it moved to London. Okay? Let, uh, probably you've been reading about what have the top students in America, regardless of their major, what jobs have they chosen? Wall Street. Okay, the top students at the top universities in America have all been going to Wall Street. Engineers, the rocket scientists wasn't a joke. Where do the rocket scientists go? Do they go work for NASA? No way. They go work for Goldman Sachs. Okay, and, and what is their job? Their job is to create risky assets that are going to blow up and blow up the economy. Okay, that's their job. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to educate people to actually go out and solve real-world problems. We have some. Okay? Innovate in the, uh, in, in the real sector, not the financial sector. Wouldn't it make more sense to have engineers engineering new bridges rather than credit default swaps? Okay, so I think all of this would be an improvement, a vast improvement. Let's let the risky stuff go somewhere else. And let's let uh, finance dominate some other country and we could be a productive economy. We could do the things that Obama was talking about in the State of the Union address so that we don't get left behind by China. And if anyone has been to Beijing, you know what he's talking about. Okay? It's just amazing and how fast they're going. And if we don't start now, we will be so far behind them in 10 years. So this is where our efforts ought to go. Forget Wall Street. You don't need Wall Street for this. Thank you again to our speaker. This concludes our event. Thank you for attending.